Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. As we enter the Christmas season, retail businesses all over the country are buzzing with much-needed festive cheer. 2020's been the toughest of years for many, but for one of Australia's most successful international franchises, Baker's Delight, it's been a year worth celebrating, not just because of the brand's 40th birthday, but because business has risen like a high-tin loaf thanks to an increase in fresh and local shopping during COVID. But it's also been a year for great learning. And for co-CEO David Christie, That learning is consistent with how he's approached his career from day one, focusing on what he's passionate about, making the most of opportunities, but also, crucially, knowing when to change tack, even if it means eating humble, cheesy mite scrolls in the process. So please enjoy this chunk of change with Dave Christie, co-CEO of Baker's Delight. Hi, David. Thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Steve, it's great to be here. So you're originally from South Africa and have a degree in history and literature. How did you end up being co-CEO of one of the biggest bakery franchises in the world? That's a great question. And I ask myself that same question very regularly. (laughs) Um, Look, I think there's a couple of factors in there. And the first is luck. It just, uh, it was very fortuitous. I met the right woman at the right time. Um, So my wife is the daughter of the founders of Baker's Delight, Elise Gillespie. And I met her on a gap year when I was traveling um, between school and university. We ended up working at the same place in England. And, it wasn't um, a bakery, yeah, was it? It certainly wasn't a bakery. It was a school in Oxford. So I like to tell people that we met in Oxford um, and you know let them draw the conclusion that we were studying there. Not the case at all. We were working <laughs> at a school where our main job was you know moving chairs and looking after uh, six-year-old kids. Um, But we had an amazing year. It was incredible. It was a lot of fun and a great break for me between school and university and a great way to get out and see the world. And yeah, met met this incredible woman um, who 10 years later was was my wife um, and found out about Baker's Delight. I knew nothing about Australia. I'd never been there before. I knew nothing about Baker's Delight. Never heard of it. Um, She introduced herself uh, as, you know, the daughter of a couple of bakers. And I met her parents a little bit later in the year. And that's exactly how Roger Gillespie introduces himself. He says, I'm a baker, which is not untrue, but um, leaves a little bit out. Very special uh, baker at that. Exactly, yeah. And then as um, the year went on, I met a few more Australians who sort of gave me a bit of insight into the size of the business. Um, had no intention at that point of getting involved, and I don't know if Elise did either, but we went back and did our studies in, in our various countries. I went back to Cape Town. We kept in touch and travelled and saw each other as often as we could. Um, and once our studies were finished, that was 2004, the business was just expanding into Canada and we thought we would take another gap year. We enjoyed the first one so much um, and moved to Canada and, and work in the stores as they were getting set up. And the plan was three to six months of work and then continue our travels. And that three to six months turned into 10 years and turned into a career. And um, yeah, so meeting the right woman, a lot of luck. Uh, but the other thing is 
taking opportunities every time they've been put in front of us. Uh, we were always very open to grabbing that next opportunity, whether it was opening a new bakery, opening a new region, moving to a new country, um, everything that's come up as an opportunity, we've always been open to it. So was university still worth it? Was was there anything in terms of your university experience that you apply in your current role? Um, I think uh, if you study humanities, you're always justifying it after the fact. Um, but I loved it. And look, dad gave me some great advice when I was considering what to do at university. And he was a lawyer by trade who then got into finance and then ended up in mining eventually. And he said, you're always learning through life. So start off by learning something that you're passionate about and that you love, um, but but don't think that that's the end of it. Um, so it was never, um, you know, university was never the, the sort of means to an outcome. It was explore and learn. Um, and literature is certainly something that I was passionate about. Um, has it given me any skills that, that have um, helped me through the rest of my career? Yes, probably. I think communication is, is critical to all forms of leadership and being able to take information, synthesize it and then um, interpret it and come up with some actions. And that's really that's what you do when you're studying literature. Um, but that's also drawing a little bit of a long bow. I think where I got most of my um, experience through university was was working in restaurants. I uh, worked you know, often seven days a week in restaurants. And, and a lot of that's due to, to meeting Elise also. I had to make money to go and visit her in Australia um, every six months. And it's not cheap flying halfway the, around the world as a student. Um, so I worked in restaurants and that was a lot of fun. I worked with people I probably never otherwise would have. I uh, worked extremely hard. I learned about customer service. I learned about management. And I learned about what real work actually was. Um, and it gave me a passion for customer service and it gave me a passion for food. Um, that, that's sort of continued through the rest of my life. Fantastic. So take us back to, to Canada. You've yep. known Elise for, for how long by the time you got there? And then tell us about the journey once you arrived in that part of North America. So we had been dating for four years at that point. Um, three of those years had been long distance with me in Cape Town and her in Melbourne. Um, and we, yeah, we met up in 2004 and we actually weren't part of the original Baker's Delight team that was sent from Australia to open up Canada. There was uh, a Baker's Dozen, so 13 people who were taken from the, the um, Australian business to open it up, including Elise's brother. And um, they were over there. We joined probably six months after they opened the very first store. And we just loved Vancouver. We fell in love with it. It's an incredible city. It's, it, it's, it's got everything that we're really passionate about. It's got a great food scene. It's very outdoorsy, um, you know, skiing, hiking, mountain biking, bike riding. It's got absolutely everything. And um, so we thought it was a pretty good place to stop and spend some time but then we were really hooked by the business. Um, my first job in a baker's, well, Cobb's Bread is what we're called over there. My first job was um, a sales assistant. It's the lowest paid job in our in our business. Um, but I remember the, the very first shift I did, just falling in love with the product and having spent years in restaurants selling 
effectively selling food to people, this was the easiest um, product I'd ever sold because I could see how good it was. I could see how fresh it was. And the customers had it right there in front of them. Um, Didn't have to push them on the specials too much? Not at all. It just felt really natural and really easy. And just to be clear of that role, what does a sales assistant actually do at Cobbs in Vancouver? Uh, they 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 sell bread over the counter. They sell bread over the yep. counter. Okay. Yep. That's 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 the role. They're they're in the store. The bakers bake and sales assistants sell it. Uh, there's a bit of crossover between the two. So as you're learning the the trade out the back, you'll come out and serve, uh, and vice versa. As you're selling bread, you know you get opportunities to get your hands dirty with a bit of baking, and that's sort of where it progressed for for me anyway was learning how to bake and then getting into managing the stores. So how did you manage working with your wife, Elise, in those early years, David? That's always been part of our relationship. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people who, who haven't been able to work with their partners. Um, we've never known anything different. We've always worked together and it's always been, it's always been good. Uh, we've had our moments over the years and um, in particular when we were opening up new stores and if Elise wasn't happy with the quality of the bread that I was baking, she would let me know about it immediately. Um, but we've always worked together. We've always had a healthy, um, a healthy competitive spirit between the two of us when we work together. We're also, we're very honest with each other as most, um, most partners are. Uh, it just, it, we've known nothing different. That time in Canada was a huge growth story for the business, David, but there must have been lots of challenges yeah. through that period as well. It was an incredible experience. I think of my time in Canada as as the rest of my education when it came to running businesses. So, you know, we started off with a handful of stores. We, By the time we left, there were 70 or 80 bakeries and we, we were just involved in almost every part of the business as it went on that journey from from two stores to to 70. So you have to wear so many different hats in an organization like that. Um, you know, human resources, marketing, finance, um, recruitment, setting up supply chains, anything you can think of, we were we were doing it. Um, and it also wasn't wasn't linear. It was, you know, the, the business started off really well. It was encouraging how the first couple of stores opened up. Uh, we got to about 20 and then we started hitting some some hurdles. You know, the, the original 13 who came over from Australia, which is you know, a huge amount of, um, of intellectual property came over with those 13 people, but they all went back to Australia. Um, and we hadn't quite bedded down some of the systems and we hadn't got the operations as smooth as we probably needed them. So we definitely went through a period of, of um, soul searching and trying to set the ship right again. Um, and that was, yeah, that, that was, um, that was a great learning experience and just going to new areas where nobody knows the brand, knows the business and starting from scratch. That's probably one of the most rewarding things I've done in my career is arriving into a new city, um, where there's never been a Cobb's bread or Baker's Light bakery before and leaving eight months later with, with a, a, you know, team set up, eight stores on the ground and uh, a lot of success coming. Was there a little bit of healthy competition with the way that, um, Roger and Leslie had expanded in Australia years before? <laughs> I would imagine, I mean, that legacy is quite an extraordinary one to follow, albeit in a different country. Well, if there's competition, Steve, we, we've, we've lost that competition because, you know, they, they got Baker's Light up to over 500 stores through the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And Did they have a bit more time, though? Uh, well, uh, it expanded pretty quickly through that time. Uh, yeah, look, 
different times, different challenges. Uh, yeah, definitely we saw that as our opportunity, maybe retrospectively, um, as to how we could make an impact on on the business. You know, there's an incredible entrepreneurial story with Roger and Leslie starting their first bakery and growing it to this, this amazing brand across Australia. And um, our, our chapter um, in, in the story is, is a bit smaller, but, but it's, it's something we're very proud of is, you know, taking that, that brand and how do you adapt it to a new country, um, to new customers and, and expand it from there. Cheesy Mite scrolls presumably don't sell so well over there. We tried, Steve. Um, we tried very hard. We, we've, there's probably still tubs of Vegemite over in Canada, Canadian bakeries gathering yeah, dust. Obviously didn't sell enough but, in the ski fields because they'd sell plenty no, out there. No. I mean, but I wanted to take a step back and look at the history of the business overall. I mean, it was started back in 1980 with a small suburban store in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. There's now over 650 stores around the world. You mentioned franchising as, as, a, as a key turning point. What other major turning points over their years has there been in that journey? Um, yeah, so franchising definitely was one of them. Um, I think we've also, you know, we've tapped into, not tapped into, but we've, we've, we've always performed really well through tough financial periods. So, you know, the, the few recessions that um, we've been through in Canada and and Australia have actually been extreme um, times of growth for our business. So back in the late nineties, uh, Baker's Light absolutely boomed. Um, in during the GFC, that was really a turning point for for uh, the Canadian business. So sort of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, so. I think what what that comes down to is is people going back to basics um, and bread being one of the the sort of cornerstones of life from our point of view. Um, so customers really going back to to core products. But the other thing we find during those periods of downturn is um, a lot of interest in our business from franchisees or prospective franchisees. You know, there's a there's a big shifts in in the labour markets. A lot of people. Um, Sadly, losing their jobs or having less job security, and looking to sectors of the of um, of businesses or, or looking at areas that, that are performing, um, and wanting to have some more control over their own destiny. So we've always had good growth during um, downturns. So I think those are some of the the turning points. And then more recently, you know, we've we, we're actually we're we're in an incredible turning point for our business right now. Um, and maybe we'll touch on COVID a little bit later. But there's some pretty fundamental changes in the way that customers are responding to to brands and shopping. Um, in pretty much every sector um, that are, are changing our business as we speak. Because one of the one of the more trying times for the businesses or one of the less successful ventures that you've made over the years is an attempt to expand into the US market. Can you give us some hypotheses on why you think that hasn't been as successful as perhaps New Zealand or Canada for that matter? Yeah, I've got a lot of theories on this, Steve, because um, we've had three cracks at it. So the first was uh, Roger and Leslie going over back in would have been you know, late eighties, and this is when they had about twenty stores in Australia. And somebody gave them some a piece of advice that they'll probably be regretting right now. And that advice was: there is no future for your business in Australia if you want to grow this brand. You need to take it to the US. Um, so they did that. They left the twenty stores in the hands of managers. Went over to the US. Opened up three. And what they found was uh, that just the 
the customers didn't value the product. Um, it's, you know, the three stores did it okay. They performed reasonably well, but there just wasn't that excitement around the products um, and people didn't eat or consume bread the same way that, um, that they did in Australia. So they gave up on that venture and um, went back to Australia and, and you know, grew the business pretty successfully in Australia. Um, Elise and I actually opened up three stores in Seattle back in 2006, 2007 it was, and had almost the identical experience. We, uh, we went down there after a run of great successes up in Canada. You know, we'd been around the, the country opening up stores and everyone just seemed to open more successfully than the last. So we thought we were untouchable. So we went down with that sense of arrogance that we could, um, we could make it work at the age of 24 or 25. And um, we, the first one was pretty good. It was near the Microsoft campus in Seattle and we had a lot of expats coming in for, for bread. Um, but the two after that just really fell pretty flat. Um, that was a huge learning experience for us. But uh, two things I would say, one, how uh, Americans eat bread is is very different to um, Australians and and probably to ca- Canadians also, um, but also just the retail land- landscape. What we were finding is there were four shopping centres in a population size that in Canada or um, Australia you might have two. Just you know the the over retailing of the US has been pretty well documented, and that's changed in the last ten years. But there were just it was just too fragmented. There were too many different locations, hard to pick the right one, hard to get the the flow of traffic through. Um, but we're on to we're on to try number three, Steve. Actually, you know, so one of the things about our business is we we learn uh, we learn slowly, or we don't learn from our mistakes. We're having another crack at the US. <laughs> what are you going to do differently this time? Well, I think uh, a few things that are different. I mean, we're, we're in a different part of the US. So we've opened up in Connecticut um, and we've been there for two years, three years now. We've got our, just opened our second store. Um, and it's actually, it's starting to look really good. So we've, we've, we think we've got the, um, the property piece down pat now. We know what types of locations work, but our business now compared to 13 years ago in North America is very, very different. Um, the product range, how we market, how we operate um, is very, very different. And we've learned a lot of lessons about how to um, engage new customers into the bakeries and then get them coming more frequently. So how do you encourage trial? Um, and then how do you, uh, you know, encourage retrial and retrial? And then how do you turn somebody into a loyal Cobb's bread um, customer? And that's been a massive learning for our business in North America. So we're a lot more sophisticated in how we do that. And we think we're onto the, the winning formula this time around, but um, check in with me in a couple of years. What are the levers that you're using to encourage trial and retrial in the states that you perhaps don't use to the same extent in the, in Canada or Australia, David? The first um, the first thing is is what uh, what engages people to come into the into the store. So um, in Australia, we are a bread business first, and then um, sort of a snacking business on top of that. So you know, most of our range and why people come to Baker's Light in the first place is typically for for the fresh bread that we bake. 
Um, a big learning for us in Canada was it's actually, it's inverted. It's, it's different. You engage people through the, the snacking um, portion of the business. And then you've got to, your job is to, once they're in the store, is to, to convince them that um, buying our bread regularly is worth their while. Um, and just that simple uh, flip in, in how we present the product range um, has been a pretty big game changer for us. So how we merchandise, um, what we go to market with in terms of uh, offers when we're first opening, um, you know, how we get in samples out into the, into the streets when we first open. These are all now focused on uh, encouraging that trial of our snacking products and then we get them uh, coming back for bread afterwards. Got it. So, so this is your, correct me if I'm wrong, your 40th year in Australia. No doubt it's been yep. a, a unique one for a number of reasons. How has the business managed through COVID? Yes, the, the unavoidable um, discussion it around COVID. It? It's been, an, <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's, look, we're, we're very proud to talk about it because it's been an incredible year for, for us. Um, starting off with the bushfires, uh, which a lot of people have forgotten about unless you live in one of those heavily impacted areas. Um, we had a number of stores and, and communities that were impacted. Uh, we thought that was a big crisis. We, um, I'd love to say we, we, you know, we saw this coming. We didn't. Um, you know, we heard the the rumblings back in in Jan, Feb, um, and like a lot of people, we we assumed that it was either going to blow over or it would be a short-term impact um, but we've every single one of our stores and every single one of our employees um, has been impacted in in some way um, but we've been fortunate Steve we've we've been able to trade through almost un- uninterrupted um, everywhere that we operate the two notable exceptions being um, New Zealand during the, the sort of peak lockdown round one back in March, April, and then South Australia, bizarrely, for two days last week. Um, we missed that we've, firsthand. We've been, oh, of course, <laughs> yes. that's, that's where you are. It's, um, it's, it's, it's been incredible just how many changes there have been. And just as soon as you think you've, you've dealt with um, as, as, you know, as much as you can, there's something new. But our, our business is incredibly resilient, you know, as a, uh, a staple product. Um, people went back to basics again, as we've seen in previous recessions, this, this one being heightened because there were literally, there, there, were, there was nowhere else to, to buy your food. It was, it was um, fresh, uh, fresh food was, was sort of it for a period of time. Um, so sales really spiked through the panic buying in the early stages. Um, we then have settled at a much higher level than we were previously. And we're, we're actually starting, we're seeing sales continue to, to increase um, rather than slowing down. So it's been a phenomenal period of time um, and managing the business through that period of time has been a challenge, but it's been, it's been inspiring just seeing our franchisees, our staff, our suppliers, um, the communities that we operate in, absolutely everybody doing what they needed to do to stay safe, but also keep people employed and keep um, the businesses running and keep people fed. So I can't think of a more exciting time to be in business, um, particularly our business. Because the franchisor, franchisee relationship, let's, let's get into that, perhaps using that as a segue point for the minute. It's been a, an extraordinarily tough 40th birthday year for your customers and your franchisees, um, for everybody 
as you said to start with. But what sort of a yeah. role does a franchisor play um, that's perhaps a little bit different when the bushfires hit the east coast of, of Australia and cause such extraordinary devastation and also that to be followed up by something like COVID. Could you give us a sense of how that perhaps shifts things in terms of the role yeah. of the franchisor and how you provide value and support to your franchisees themselves? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And the role of the franchisor, you could almost, I view very similarly to the role of government. You know, for 95% of the time, um, you actually don't want to hear much from them or see much from them. You know, the role of government and the role of the franchisor in normal times is setting the direction. So, you know, here's where we're going um, and then giving people the tools uh, or systems to get there and then just getting out of their way, letting them letting them do what they need to do as franchisees who will always know their customers and their communities better than, than we can sitting in, a, in an office in Camberwell. Um, and we've not always um, stuck to those principles, um, but we, we really do try to. So, you know, set the direction, give people the right tools and then allow them to do what they do best. Uh, that role changed pretty fundamentally through COVID. Um, in a crisis, the franchisor needs to lead. They need to be very, very visible. They need to be um, available to, to, to the staff, to the franchisees, to the customers. They need to be not just set in the direction on a, you know, once a year or every six months, but but almost on a daily basis and removing the complexity because there was so much complexity, um, particularly early on when, when, you know, things were changing on a daily basis, um, removing the complexity and giving the, the stores what they needed, um, but then also overlaying that, you know, that clear sense of direction and also a sense of meaning. I think everybody was struggling for, for their, um, their role. What, what part do we play in this crisis? What do we need to do? Uh, and that's an important job that leaders have had to play. Um, and I think we did that reasonably well. There were, you know, looking back there, there are definitely some things that we would have done differently. Um, but by and large, we we acknowledged and recognised very early on that this was a moment that would either make or break our business and so many other businesses. Um, so having to step up wasn't wasn't really a an option. It just it, it, it had to happen. Can you expand or give us some examples on the the types of initiatives that you did undertake in order to provide that sort of that additional direction and remove some of the complexities for the franchisees themselves? Yeah, so communication was was top priority. And um, I've heard it many times and, and I've never seen it, it bear out um, as clearly as, as in this case. But you can't you can't over communicate in a crisis. Um, and we really took that principle to heart. Um, so we were sending out directly from the CEO's daily communications to all of our franchisees. Um, and that included everything they needed um, to, to operate safely. So, you know, we had sometimes daily changes to our operating standards on, you know, how many people could be in store, where the customers had to stand, um, what products we were making, what products we weren't making, um, you know, getting sanitizer out to the stores. There was just, there was so many changes happening at such a rapid pace. Um, how could we supply all the stores when, when, you know, sales were sort of double 
or triple what a normal volume would have been. Uh, and we've got good communication systems to our franchisees, but they're a little bit dis- disparate. Um, so what we did was just centralize it all into this one single communication on a daily basis that had everything that they needed. Um, so you know, if you're in a store uh, where you are up to your eyeballs in uh, in, in dough um, and baking as hard as you can, trying to keep your staff happy and safe and your customers happy and safe, knowing that there was just one thing you needed to look at on a daily basis and then action um, was was pretty useful for the franchisees. And I didn't realize um, how much until, you know, now we're actually able to get out and speak to a few of them. And that simple communication has been very useful for them. Um, yeah, so that's 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 one example. I mean, you know, just simple things like getting hand sanitizer to bakeries back in, in March when the entire world was was uh, going after the same limited resource. Couldn't get your hands so, on it, could you? Yeah, it, and getting flour to the stores, just the, the simple processes of getting things to them so they could do what they needed to do. I can't let you off. You did touch on there's a few things that you would have done differently as a precursor to what you just mentioned, but what would you have done differently in hindsight, David? Uh, look, we, we we did this early on, actually, where we thought about um, what what would we have loved to have done pre-COVID um, to set us up uh, to, to, to be in the best position for the crisis. And there were really three things um, that we, we settled on. And the first was access to capital. Um, and Baker's Light's got no debt. We're, we're, you know, we're in a very good financial position. Um, and we've never had the need for um, any sort of bank facility. So we've never had one. Um, early days of COVID, we didn't know what we were facing and we didn't know what we would need to draw on. So uh, as we were trying to get a, a facility, the rest of the world was too. And and turns out there was no need for it. We might but, have been in the same line. Thing. Yeah, Probably asking for I different think, amounts. I think uh, I think everybody in business was in that in that same line. Um, so that was the first thing. The second was uh, our capacity to to, to deliver. Um, so you know, food, grocery, fresh fresh food is um, has lagged beyond uh, behind the rest of retail, and it's always been such a small part. We've had partnerships with Uber Eats over the journey, but it's been a tiny little part of our business and something that most of our network hasn't um, embraced. Um, and we would have liked to have been a lot further along that journey um, through, through you know, in the lead up to COVID. Um, yeah, so, so there's a couple of things. And then, you know, the final one would probably be just um, having state uh, government relations, better relations with, uh, with authorities at a state level. Um, again, it became very apparent early on that these decisions were being made about who could open, who couldn't open um, at a state level um, and decisions were being made on the fly with limited information. Well, I can tell you our kids were outraged when they couldn't get their favourite Baker's Delight bread for the couple of mornings that you were shut here in <laughs> South Australia. You'll have to get that policy person on the ground for the South Australian uh, government if you haven't done it already. Well, we're, yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that's been a bit of a scramble the last week, Steve. And if you think if you think your kids were outraged, you should have seen my wife. Uh, yeah, just stop no fuming today. No, no doubt, no doubt. So let's talk a little more about the franchisees themselves, particularly given they're so integral to the success of your business. What are the most important traits of successful franchisees? Do they have to love baking or what does it, what does it boil down to? 
Um, they don't need to necessarily love baking before they start, but um, after four months of, of training, if they don't love baking at that point, then it's probably not going to be a good relationship. Um, so certainly don't need to come in with a background in, in baking. We've got franchisees from absolutely every walk of life. Uh, but some of the common traits or characteristics, they need to be passionate about people. Um, that to me is 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 sort of a, a baseline um, for somebody who's going to be a small business owner and particularly in a business like ours, which is so community focused and where managing a team of 15 to 20 people is, uh, is going to determine your success or failure, how you manage those people. So the ability to, to you know, work at pace, but also just work within their community and um, manage a team effectively is absolutely critical. Um, they need to be comfortable with the environment. Uh, working in a bakery is not for everybody. It's, it's you know, it's hard work. It's uh, early mornings. And um, if you think you can go in with a good team and you'll never have to wake up at 2.30 to do a baking shift, you are um, sadly mistaken. It's going to happen at some point. Um, I think in our, you know, the eight years Lisa and I spent in Canada, we were probably baking four days a week on average. Just that is that is what we do. That is where the magic happens in our, wow. in our little retail operation. So you, you need to be comfortable with that. Um, and you need to be passionate about customer service. So even if you don't have a background in bread, you need to be passionate about talking to people about it and um, selling it to them. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So tell me, do they become better bakers or do they just get better at following recipes? Yeah, con consistency is a constant challenge for us. And, you know, there, there's various ways around that. But um, do franchisees, do, do people become better bakers? Um, yes, you know, and and typically you, you find people who haven't had a background in baking go one or two directions. They either um, fall in love with it and um, then they become real experts and they just, you know, they suck up any information they can and they really... Uh, try to find out as much about the art and craft of baking as as possible. Um, or you've got the others who it's it's the means to an end and follow the system, get the bakers in place, um, and that's that's fine too. Um, but consistent consistency is absolutely one of our our biggest challenges, um, and the people dictate the the quality in the stores. And um, we've obviously got good systems. We've got a lot of consistency with the, the equipment we use, with the processes we use, with the recipes. Um, but there's still a lot of variables that go into baking bread from scratch every day. Sure. So that was one of my questions was how much scope is there for franchisees to find better ways of doing things when you're following such strict quality control, it almost sort of does away with first principles thinking in terms of why things work and following recipes to the letter of the law becomes kind of the most important thing to do. How much scope does that leave for finding better ways of doing things from the bakers and the franchisees themselves? Again, this is a constant um, tension within probably all franchise businesses, which is how much um, how much do you, do you need to lay out a a sort of rock solid system that everybody needs to, to follow down to the T um, versus how much space are you leaving for creativity and innovation from your network? Um, we are probably, you know, 
midway through the spectrum on that. I think there's some brands out there that do an incredible job of 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 just systems procedures, um, and you know they're well known brands that are successful across the globe. Um, so you can't fault their approach. I think uh, when I look at our business, a lot of our great innovation has come from a store level. Uh, we've had some of our best known products have um, have come from people tinkering in the bakeries. So we try to leave that space for them to do that. Um, obviously, without uh, compromising what we do day, day to day, um, but we are certainly open to and encourage the stores to come forward with product uh, suggestions and recipes and ideas that they think will work in their communities. Um, the other thing with our system is, you know, the average store would make probably about 80 to 100 different products on a daily basis. Um, of those, 40 of them are consistent across Australia. So our recipe contains hundreds and hundreds of products. And um, we, we give the franchisees a lot of flexibility at a store level to, to work out what range is going to suit their um, customers, their community, their demographic best. We obviously provide them with with uh, a lot of data and insights as to what we think will work, but um, uh, it is left up to them to work out that that sort of um, 50%. That sounds really interesting. I'd love to see some of the proposals you have for, for new products coming out of all those bakers that you work with, both here We've and in had- Canada. Yep, we've had uh, we've had some crazy ones over the years. Um, you know, lots lots of lots of weird and wonderful ingredients coming through. Um, so we do filter out a fair few before they even get to to test and trial. But um, our, our uh, technical bakers are almost on a daily basis um, baking products and suggestions that have come from the network. So we we do take a lot of it, even if it sounds crazy. We'll give it a crack and see what it turns out like. Well done. Look, there's a lot of success in that network, but what about when franchises don't work out? That must be really difficult on everyone involved. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it does happen. Um, you know, one of the, the ways I look at franchising is it's, it's still small business ownership. Um, and small business ownership is, is is difficult. It's one of the, the toughest things you can do is start a small business. Franchising um, takes out some of the complexity. It gives you, you know, a brand, a product range, a system. Um, so a lot of those things that small business owners who are starting from scratch would have to develop on their own. It sort of removes that from the thought process, but that there, there are other parts of it that it doesn't remove. So financial management, um, you know, PNL management, staff management; these these are still um, very much in the control of the individual business owner, um, and it doesn't it doesn't always work out. And when it doesn't, it is not good for for anyone. It's not good for the community. It's obviously it's devastating for the individual um, if their their business isn't successful, um, and it's devastating for the brand too, and particularly a business like ours where we. We really value our family feeling. It's 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 one of the things that um, is important to us. So seeing people not succeed um, is 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 difficult um, and ultimately damages the brand. Yeah, look, success is all is all about growth. Um, and I'd I'd be interested to shift gears just a little bit and talk about the dynamics of the industry and what's driving that growth in Australia. 
Yep. You've got about 15% of the market, depending on how you define it. Where is the growth going to come from, especially given that population growth's flattening because of COVID, of course? Where do you see the key opportunities coming from over the course of the next, say, three to five years, David? I think you touched on it, Steve, when uh, you said we've got 15% of the bread market. Um, it means there's 85% out there for the taking. Um, not that we're after a after all, 85% of it, because my guess is is probably, you know, a third of the bread market is unprofitable in Australia, just with how heavily discounted it, it uh, gets in, in some of the supermarkets. Um, but while we have a, a strong presence, we've got, um, you know, we've got a good foot, footprint in Australia. Um, we certainly have opportunities, you know, if you look at um, our market share in, in Victoria compared to, say, Queensland or New South Wales. Um, we're, we're very strong in Victoria. Uh, we're not as strong in, in other high-density population areas of, of Australia. So there, there are certainly some opportunities for, for us um, in terms of, of um, getting into new, new sites, new centres, um, and how we do that might be different to how we've done it over the last sort of 40 years. So um, smaller format stores is definitely something we're exploring. Um, you know, digital's obviously really interesting. And I mentioned earlier uh, about how far behind uh, fresh food is to the rest of retail. So by, you know, all the measures I've seen, fresh food pre, pre-COVID was sort of one or 2% of the overall uh, was was online. Um, that's probably tripled, quadrupled, maybe even ten times. But but even then, it's still only at about ten percent um, of of the the total fresh food market is is now online. So we um, we haven't worked out exactly where and how we're going to play in in that space um, and how we're going to do it profitably for our franchisees and for for us. Um, but we we're certainly exploring the options. Fantastic and. The other driver of growth, of course, is advertising and the marketing that you provide for franchisees. There's a couple of campaigns of note in addition to the above the line work that I wanted to chat to you yep. for a little bit about, David, was, and both actually involve Facebook, interestingly enough. The first was the BCNA, the Breast Cancer Network, Pink Buns campaign from a couple of years ago, where you were actually forced to pull the campaign from Facebook. And most recently, you pulled an ad which showed a couple of young girls tied to Christmas lights with their mouths kind of shut and stuffed with food. And there was some pretty serious complaints from a lobby group that alleged that it was portraying various forms of child abuse. Can you tell us or expand a little bit on the tension that exists between quite obvious attempts at distinctiveness and cut through and how you manage that in terms of community sentiment and the challenge of, for want of a better term, being politically correct in this day and age? Yeah. So maybe I'll start with um, with the BCNA campaign last year. So we've, we've had an incredible relationship with the Breast Cancer Network of Australia going back 20 years. And it's a campaign, our Pink Bun campaign, something we do every year and have done for pretty much 20 years. And you know, we raise uh, anywhere between one to two million every year when we do that campaign. And getting people to sit up and take notice of what uh, we think is an incredibly important cause 
when you do it every year is 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 difficult. And you know how we get people to to take notice um, is really making sure it's activated in store. So we give the 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 teams and the franchisees full license to just go as pink as they can. It's pink everywhere. Um, yep, through that campaign. So you you literally cannot walk by without knowing that something's going on. Um, and the conversations that it drives um, it are incredible. Just the number of people, customers who walk in and then have a conversation with often a, you know, a young sales team member or, or baker uh, about how they've been touched by breast cancer and the thanks they get for supporting it has been something that the, the worth we just, to, obviously there's, there's a huge amount of value to, to BCNA in raising that money, but the awareness that it drives for our employees and the engagement is, is huge. Um, last year, we felt we needed to, it, it was not getting stale, but it needed something to, to get a bit more cut through. Um, and in conjunction with BCNA, we made this uh, decision to, to go fairly confronting with the artwork. Um, and we had the, uh, a number of, of breast cancer survivors uh, volunteer to, to put themselves forward to effectively take their tops off and show the impacts of, uh, of breast cancer on, on their bodies and do it in a way that that was um, was respectful and joyful and that they they were really given complete um, uh, authority over over how that was presented and and how it was eventually uh, portrayed to to customers it was uncomfortable you know for our our staff probably and for our franchisees and um, you know we we I remember sitting with um, Elise, my wife, and our head of marketing, Jody, the night before the campaign uh, launched and, um, you know, having a few, having a few doubts uh, about whether this was the right thing to do. And we made the decision to go ahead because the women were so engaged in it. So the, the women who had volunteered were so engaged and so proud of the, the artwork that, that they'd, um, they'd been involved in creating. Uh, it turned out to to create uh, a bit of a bit of a ripple, as you said. Facebook pulled the ads, um, but the community support that then followed that was incredible, and the awareness that that campaign drove um, was phenomenal. We've never seen anything like it, and we had a record-breaking year for raising money and awareness for BCNA. So, well done. That decision was was absolutely the right one. Well um, the the second one you talked about, which is more recent, is is different. Um, it's it's different because the intent of that campaign was never to create any awareness. It was never to um, to, to make a specific point. It was a frivolous idea. Um, you know, having some fun with the idea that we've all been locked down, and you know, our kids are probably driving us crazy uh, through lockdown. And um, you know, this is what. Uh, a little bit of joy over the Christmas period looks like in in 2020, um, and it wasn't interpreted that way. And even the way you just described it, when you hear that, uh, it sounds confronting. And um, what happened was um, a, a group uh, picked up on this. You know, we'd had it we'd had it in front of probably two million customers um, with without a single complaint, and then it, it was picked up by by a particular group. Um, and they started a, a campaign against it. Um, 
And regardless of our our, our views on whether it was appropriate or not, uh, we, we made the decision to, to pull it. And the reason we made that decision was because our intent was not to create controversy or to make a particular point. It was to have some fun. And if there were people out there who um, interpreted it differently to us, um, then that that we, we wanted to respect that. So we made that decision pretty quickly. We, we pulled it down, we apologized, um, and we a- allowed our stores to focus on what they really wanted to focus on, which is is uh, delivering a great experience over Christmas. So the the distinctiveness between the two, I would almost describe as one was a was a very direct and transparent representation of the realities of breast cancer and and the impact that that can have on people in quite a very stark and and direct way. The other was more of a of a concept that was designed to create cut through, never in a million years intended to generate the type of reaction that it did from the small number of people that perhaps did end up complaining about it. Is that the difference, do you think? is Was it that one was just a, a stark representation of real life and, and the impact of breast cancer? The other one was was actually a an artificial construct that was created for the purpose of cut through? Am I right in, in saying that, David? How would, how would you I, describe that difference? I think that's right. And, and I think um, as leaders, you... you you need to um, occasionally decide what you're really going to push back against and and fight um, and fight for, um, and and what you need to move on from. This felt into fell into the the category of of uh, what we needed to to move on from, um, and I think you, you, you summarised it pretty well. It's really coming back to to intent. What were we intending to achieve through this? Um, and we were intending to have some fun, and if it, if that wasn't how it was uh, how it was being interpreted, um, then we needed to move on pretty quickly from it. And uh, I think we did that. Uh, will we come up against this again in the future? Uh, absolutely. I think if you if if you um, if you're in business, uh, you 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 will occasionally create controversy, um, and particularly if you're pushing the boundaries. Um, to try and create awareness, and it's it's a lesson, I suppose, in where to push the boundaries and where to where to play safe. Look, speaking of of Breast Cancer Network, you've now had a relationship with that extraordinary organisation for about twenty years. But look, the Gillespies themselves, as a family, the original founders of Baker's Delight, of course, have got a long-standing history of giving the back to the community, going back all the way to, I believe, Roger's father, who helped migrants. In Australia, open bakeries all the way back in the 70s. I'm just old enough to, to remember <laughs> some of those initiatives. Where does that desire and impetus to give back come from, would you say, David? What would, what would you put that down to? And what are some of the benefits for the family and the, and the business as a result? I think it's always been a part of the way that the Gillespies do business. As, as a family, um, we are fairly direct um, and, you know, not without... Uh, causing conflict uh, with ourselves and sometimes with others o- over the years. But we, we've we always been, Roger and Leslie have, have always been um, of the view that you share success and you share it with um, your franchisees, your employees and your, your community. Um, and I think there's also a selfish aspect of this too, which is how much joy you get out of, out of um, actually giving back and seeing that um, 
seen that have an impact on the world. So obviously, uh, BCNA has has been incredible for for us, and uh, they feel like family. Um, the original founder, Lynn Swinburne, is, has obviously you know she's moved on from BCNA, but um, the CEO of of BCNA at the moment, um, Kirsten Pilati, has been part of that team for the well over ten years, probably closer to twenty years, um, and. Uh, KP and Elise and I catch up regularly. Um, the BCNA team literally are on the same floor as, as us in our uh, office in Camberwell. You know, we've included them as part of our office. Um, it feels like family. And um, it's it's also, I think there are a lot of benefits to, to the network and to um, employees. We've had a number of people join our business and say that one of the reasons they've joined is because of that BCNA relationship. Okay, thanks so much, David. Look, Elise is a fourth or fifth generation baker. I, I've got to ask you, do your kids bake? Um, they will be, Steve. Uh, so, yes, sixth generation bakers in the making. Our uh, daughter shows an aptitude for it. She's six. Um, our young son, Ollie, he's four. He doesn't show any interest in uh, <laughs> making food. He's got a lot of interest in eating it at this point. Um, but but our, our daughter, one, of, one of my favorite activities to do with, with uh, Isabel um, is, is cook. You know, that's Sunday afternoons. Um, I do a lot of the cooking for the household and she joins me on Sunday afternoons, sometimes for about three seconds, sometimes for a little bit longer, but um, she always takes a lot of pride in in saying that she's helped prepare the family meals. Um, and she's and actually, been getting into sourdough baking like everyone else through COVID? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Sourdough, <laughs> that was an interesting one. So, you know, we, we followed Google Trends the whole way through, um, through COVID and you could see that massive spike in interest in sourdough um, through lockdown. And uh, we released a couple of videos about how to do it at home. Uh, we had a bit of pushback from some of our franchisees about those because, you know, from their point of view, why would you be teaching people to bake sourdough at home when they should be coming to buy it from us? And my response to every single one of them was, I can guarantee you people will try and do it once and never again. Do it again. Baking is difficult. <laughs> Give them a whole new appreciation for the product. Exactly, I yeah. Like so, yeah. Um, so, no, she's she's not into sourdough baking as of yet, um, but we'll get her there. And you think there's a chance they might take over from you guys one day? Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't really given that much thought, to be honest. I mean, it seems so far away. And uh, I look, I think it's incredible that um, Roger and Leslie built this business and um, have managed to maintain it for 40 years and grow it for 40 years um, and really reinvent themselves as CEOs over their you know, 35-year journey as, as leaders of the business. Um, do I see... Elise and I running the business for the next 30 years? Probably not. I don't think um, that's us. Uh, I think there will be an external CEO to the business uh, at some point, whether that's in sort of five years, 10 years. Um, and then maybe they'll have their crack after that if they, if they want. Um, one thing that is certain is as soon as they're legal working age, they will be getting a job, whether it's in a local baker's slide or a local um, you know, restaurant or, or cafe. Um, that culture of of um, of work and and work ethic is something 
I'm really proud of that was passed down from Roger and Leslie to Elise and Aaron. Um, you know, from as soon as they could, they were out working in the stores. They um, pocket money was cut off, and uh, if they wanted something, they had to earn it. And I think that's an incredible lesson for um, for all children. Well said. Look, regardless of what that succession plan looks like, um, David, I've got every confidence that your family and your extended family will continue to do a phenomenal job through all manner of COVID-related challenges and otherwise. I've really enjoyed our, our chat today. Thanks so much, David, for joining us on Chunk of Change. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.